Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Grandma, it's me, Anastasia. Oh, brother. <laughs> In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 138, Anastasia. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. As always, welcome back to this podcast. Thank you for being here. Whether you are a returning listener or a brand new listener to this podcast, thank you so much for being here. You are wonderful and amazing. And basically, no matter how you found this podcast, I'm so happy that you have found this podcast, especially right now, because we are in the middle of animation season 2022. This is the third annual animation season that Verbal Diorama has done. It is one of my favorite things that I do for this podcast because I am a huge fan of animation and I love all sorts of animation. I love hand-drawn, I love CG, I love stop motion, pretty much everything. I do have a slight preference for hand-drawn and stop-motion animation, but animation is one of the joys in my life. I absolutely love it. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this particular season and all of the other seasons that I've done is mainly because I think there's a general misconception out there that if something is animated, then it means it must just be for children. And admittedly, the movie Anastasia, it is a family movie. It's a movie that, well... We're going to go into the history of the real Anastasia Romanoff. I mean, that is not very family friendly, just as a story in general. But this movie very much is. Although animation in general is not just for children. It's also not a genre either, which is just something that is like a pet peeve of mine. One of the things that I want to do before we start is I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who has listened to previous episodes. There was an episode of Corpse Bride. There was also an episode on the Prince of Egypt. And most recently, as of this episode's general release, there was an episode on Grave of the Fireflies, which is a hugely emotional and difficult movie to talk about. That is a movie that definitely 
is not just for children. That is an animated movie that could not be made successfully in real life, although they've tried to make live action adaptations and it's never quite worked. Animation can portray literally anything. There are no limits to what animation can actually do. And so as a medium, as an actual film medium, it's one of the most expressive out there. And that's one of the most amazing things about animation. It's one of the reasons why I love talking about these movies. And it's one of the reasons why there's so many more amazing movies coming. Because I do like to talk about the animated movies that everyone knows and loves, like Disney and Pixar movies, but also the ones that people don't. And there is going to be plenty of Disney and Pixar stuff coming. But I think sometimes it's nice to just be reminded what else is out there. And there's obviously a lot of animation that I've not been able to cover so far, but I will get to it eventually. But the fifth movie this animation season is a movie that many people actually mistake as being from Disney because that was actually the intention of this movie to rival Disney's princess output at the time. But the story behind the real Grand Duchess Anastasia Romanoff doesn't end quite as happily ever after as this movie might suggest. So before we go into all of that, here's the trailer for Anastasia. An enchanted world. Bizarre of Imperial Russia. A sorcerer's curse. I will not rest until I see the end of the Romanov line forever. A young princess. Anastasia. Grandma. Who vanished without a trace. Although the Tsar did not survive, one daughter may be still alive. The Princess Anastasia! Anastasia, alive? Ain't that the kick in the head? I guess a curse just ain't what it used to be, huh, sir? It's the story of an orphan named Anya. You want to find your family, huh? And a dreamer named Dimitri. Do you see what I see? Yes! You think that I am Anastasia? That's why I'm stuck here in limbo. Don't get so grabby. They're teaming up to find a clue to her past before the evil Rasputin destroys their future. I want to look my best. Whoa, that fell right out. The last of the Romanovs will die! We're gonna have to jump! From the streets of Russia Anya! to the lights of Paris. I will see no more girls claiming to be Anastasia. You have to talk to her. Finding the truth. You really are Anastasia. Will be their greatest challenge. You will address the princess as your highness. And following her heart. We've been through a lot together. Princesses don't marry kitchen boys. Will be her toughest choice. What goes around comes around. I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> Dimitri! Hold on! This can only end in tears. And bring me home Anastasia. I'd give her a ha, then a hi-ya, and I'd kick her, sir. The missing daughter of the last Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, Anastasia, is found by two Russian conmen, Dmitri and Vladimir, who seek the reward that her grandmother, the Dowager Empress Marie, promises to the ones who find her. 
But the evil mystic of the Romanov family, Grigory Rasputin, still wants the Romanov family to be destroyed forever. Let's quickly run through the cast. We have a huge all-star cast. Similarly to the Prince of Egypt, which had a huge all-star cast for the time, this, also a huge all-star cast. Meg Ryan as Anastasia, Anya Romanov, Job Cusack as Dimitri, Kelsey Grammer as Vlad Vilosevich, Christopher Lloyd as Grigory Rasputin, Frank Welker as Puka, Hank Azaria as Bartok, Angela Lansbury as Dowager Empress Marie Fyodorovna Romanov, Bernadette Peters as Sophie Samorkov Smirnov, and featuring Kirsten Dunst as a young Anastasia. Anastasia had a screenplay by Susan Gautier, Bruce Graham, Bob Sudica, and Noni White, a story by Eric Tuckman, is directed by Don Bluth and Gary Goldman, and based on the 1956 film Anastasia by Arthur Lawrence and the 1952 play Anastasia by Marcel Moret. And I've already mentioned The Prince of Egypt, and just like The Prince of Egypt, Anastasia has a historic element to the story, and to start it, we have to go all the way back to 1613, when Michael I became the first Russian Tsar of the House of Romanov. The Romanov family reigned over Russia for 300 years and 18 generations, and some of the most famous monarchs in world history, including Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, were from the Romanov family. On the 1st of March 1881, following the assassination of his grandfather, Tsar Alexander II, Nicholas II became heir apparent as his father Alexander III ascended the Russian throne. When Alexander III died in 1894, Nicholas II became the Tsar of Russia. Nicholas would marry the favourite granddaughter of Britain's Queen Victoria, then known as Princess Alex of Hesse. Before their marriage in November 1894, she converted to the Russian Orthodox Church and became known as Alexandra Fyodorovna, and they were crowned in 1896. Nicholas had very little experience ruling a country and the duration of his rule was plagued with social and political unrest, and Alexandra was unpopular among Russian people due to her brusque demeanour and German ancestry, as well as her fascination with the occult and mystics, which is something that I'm going to come back to. The pressure was on this couple to provide an heir to carry on the Romanov name, and in 1895 their eldest daughter Olga was born. Two more daughters, Tatiana and Maria, would follow in 1897 and 1899. In 1900, Nicholas became ill, and the Russian cabinet were forced to discuss what could happen if Nicholas were to die without an heir, because sons are always required and daughters are generally burdens. Alexandra became more and more interested in the occult to help her conceive a son, and when, in 1901, she gave birth to a fourth daughter, Anastasia, the disappointment from the family and country was palpable. The baby girl was given the Greek name Anastasia, which meant resurrection, rather than a traditional Russian name. Alexandra was introduced to a mystic named Philippe Mizier-Vachot, who claimed he had the power to change the sex of a baby inside the womb. Nicholas would make Mizier-Vachot a state councillor and military doctor, and while Alexandra would miscarry a baby shortly after Anastasia, she would eventually give birth to a son and the heir to the Russian throne, Alexei, in 1904. This was after bathing in the Sarova River and praying that the sacred waters would bless them with their much-desired son. Alexei inherited haemophilia from his mother, an illness that many women in the British royal family carried, including Queen Victoria herself. And in the early 20th century, haemophilia was a death sentence. 
with an average life expectancy of 13 years of age. As Alexandra was the cause, many in the imperial family blamed her for contaminating the Romanov bloodline and to avoid any more civil unrest, the decision was made to not inform the Russian people of Alexei's condition. Desperate to cure an incurable disease, Nicholas and Alexandra became close with Grigory Rasputin, a priest and mystic from Siberia who claimed to be able to cure haemophilia. Rasputin had a powerful influence on the couple, which infuriated everyone from nobility to peasants. His interference in matters of Russian politics led to him being assassinated in 1916. This was despite him reportedly saving the life of the seriously ill Alexei, which only enhanced his political power with the Tsar and Tsarina. Because of Russian involvement with the First World War, which was already a decision hated by the Russian people, and due to Nicholas II's incompetency at ruling decisively, two million Russian lives were lost. The economy was collapsing, corruption was rife, crowds mutinied and moderates ended up joining with the radical Bolshevik revolutionaries to call for an overthrow of the Tsar. Tsar Nicholas II ended up abdicating the throne on the 15th of March 1917, ending more than 300 years of Romanov rule and setting about the Russian Revolution. Now, what happens next is quite important to the story, but I'm not going to go into too much detail because honestly, the details of this are pretty horrific. But the Tsar and his family were imprisoned by the Bolsheviks, firstly in Siberia and then at Ipatiev House in Yekaterinburg. The Bolsheviks seized power in Russia, led by Vladimir Lenin. Civil war broke out in late 1917 after the Bolshevik Revolution and the two warring factions were the White Army, the Allied forces and supporters of democratic socialism, and the Red Army who fought for Lenin's Bolsheviks. By July 1918, the White Army were advancing and the Red Army feared the White Army were advancing to free the Romanov family. And so the family were taken into the basement, lined up as if for a photo and shot by firing squad. Reportedly, these bullets didn't finish them due to the family sewing their diamond jewellery into their clothing for safekeeping and bayonets were used to finish the job. The family's whereabouts remained unknown until the remains of Nicholas, Alexandra and three of their daughters were found in a mass grave in the Ural Mountains in 1991. This was confirmed by mitochondrial DNA testing. The remains of Alexei and one of his sisters, either Anastasia or Maria, remained unknown until they were discovered in a second grave in 2007 and again proven by DNA testing to be the final two missing members of the Romanov family. In the wake of the execution and afterwards, rumours swirled that the then 17-year-old Grand Duchess Anastasia had managed to escape the horrors at Yekaterinburg. Anastasia was known for her charm and wit, and many suggested that she had escaped the grim assassination by pretending to be dead and befriending a guard to help her escape. The legend persisted for years, centuries, inspiring numerous books, as well as dozens of women across Europe claiming to be the Grand Duchess. The most famous imposter was Anna Anderson, who was found after a suicide attempt in Berlin. She claimed to be Anastasia Romanov, but this was disproved in 1927, when it was found that she was actually a Polish factory worker called Franziska Szankowska and had a history of mental illness. Modern DNA testing would also disprove Anna Anderson's claims to be the Grand Duchess. Other imposters like Eugenia Smith, Eleonora Kruger, Natalia Bilikodzi and Nadezhda Vasileya would also be disproved. It wasn't just Anastasia imposters. Only son Alexei also had several men claim to be him over the years, including a CIA agent, as well as the other sisters Olga, Tatiana and Maria. People made money off potentially being one of the Romanovs or being related to them, 
There was even a restaurant on Rodeo Drive, Hollywood, called Romanoff's, which was open from 1941 to 1962, ran by a man claiming to be the nephew of Tsar Nicholas II. This was also later disproved as well. The public consciousness surrounding Anastasia's possible second life in Europe had inspired several movies, starting in 1928 with Clothes Make the Woman, starring Eve Southern and Walter Pidgeon. Southern stars as Anastasia as she escapes Russia and ends up in Hollywood. There was also a 1956 movie starring Ingrid Bergman and Yul Brynner called Anastasia, which was adapted from a 1952 play written by Marcel Moret and adapted into English by Guy Bolton. The real story of Anastasia and the Romanov family is so tragic that it's hard to believe anyone would want to make a movie out of it, let alone an animated musical. And obviously the movie changes a lot of the story to make it more palatable for an animated audience, including making Nicholas II seem like a beloved ruler. Rasputin being the villain of the piece and disposing of the Romanov family, putting a curse on them, which makes the Russian people turn on them. That was all made up for this movie. Rasputin was very close to the Romanov family. There was no ill will between them. In fact, the Romanovs absolutely loved Rasputin because they believed that he had helped give them this beloved son that they really wanted. And the most obvious historical inaccuracy is the survival of Anastasia herself. Although arguably this movie was made at a time when her remains were unknown or not found. But now that history lesson is over, how did Anastasia the movie actually come to be made and come to be the first 20th Century Fox animated feature produced by the new animation division Fox Animation Studios, which is now known as 20th Century Animation? To start, we need to talk about Don Bluth and the demise of Don Bluth Entertainment. It was the 1994 film Thumbelina, which nailed the lid on the financial coffin of the studio, formerly known as Sullivan Bluth Studios. I talked about this at length in my first episode on Titan AE and also episode 76, The Secret of Nim. So please take a listen to those episodes because the history surrounding Don Bluth is really, really fascinating. So I'm not going to repeat it here in this episode on Anastasia. And the studio Don Bluth and Gary Goldman formed after the demise of Don Bluth Entertainment was after they were hired by Bill Mechanic. He was the then chairman of 20th Century Fox, and he wanted to oversee a brand new Fox animation division designed to compete with who else but Disney. And bear in mind, at the time, Disney was full on in its renaissance period. Before Bluth came to Fox, the studio distributed animated features like Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest, Once Upon a Forest, and The Pagemaster. Fox was going to channel more than $100 million into becoming a serious competitor to Disney. They built a new animation studio in Phoenix, Arizona. They hired 300 artists and technicians, a third of whom had worked for Sullivan Bluth. For their first project, they wanted an existing story which Fox already owned the rights to. The King and I and My Fair Lady was suggested, and Anastasia would eventually use parts of the Pygmalion story within Anastasia. Both of those ideas were passed on, and it was Bill Mechanic who suggested the story of the Russian Grand Duchess Anastasia. Bluth and Goldman enlisted the help of former CIA agents stationed in Moscow and St. Petersburg to research the actual events of what happened to the Romanov family. Screenwriter Eric Tuckman had written a script for an Anastasia adaptation, but it was incredibly dark and depressing, no surprise there, and rooted in Russian politics. Also, no surprise, considering we now know the history of the Romanov family. Bluth and Goldman realised the story behind Anastasia was far too dark for an animated movie. 
But they still wanted to go ahead. They decided against using Lenin or the Bolsheviks in the story as the primary villains, instead focusing on the character of Rasputin, who, as I mentioned, had actually been assassinated before the Romanov family were assassinated. So historically, he couldn't have actually done it anyway. In 1995, Bruce Graham and Susan Gautier reworked Tuckman's script into something more akin to a Disney princess movie with Bob Zudica and Noni White hired for additional rewrites. Carrie Fisher also made uncredited rewrites on the script. When it came to casting, Don Bluth only wanted Meg Ryan for the role of Anastasia, but she wasn't keen. And this was mainly to do with the dark subject matter and the history surrounding this character. To persuade her, the animation team animated a scene based on her character from Sleepless in Seattle and screened it for her when she was visiting the studio. Ryan was blown away and took the role. Unlike most animated movies, Meg Ryan and John Cusack ended up recording their lines together, noting that it made a huge difference to the dialogue and chemistry between the two actors and their characters. And one of the great things about this movie, actually, is the very natural dialogue between Anya and Dimitri. While most of Anastasia is essentially fantasy, some subtle real-life nods did make it into the movie, such as Rasputin falling into the frozen river. He was actually thrown into a river after his murder to ensure that he was actually dead because reportedly bullets did not finish him off. Anastasia really did have a dog. It was not called Puka. It was called Jimmy. It's said that Jimmy also did not survive the massacre. An authentic piece of artwork drawn by the real Anastasia Romanov is included in the scene between Anastasia and the Dowager Empress. And the music box given to Anastasia by her grandmother did exist. It was gifted to her on her 13th birthday, but it was silver and not gold. The working title of the movie was actually Music Box. And this can be seen on several early drawings of the character of Anastasia, which appear to have been drawn by Don Bluth himself. And if I remember, I will put some of those drawings up on social media because they are very, very beautiful drawings. And you can clearly see where they were trying to go with this character. The animation team went to great lengths to recreate the Catherine Palace and its grand ballroom decorated in the Baroque stylings with gold plating and double high windows and a huge CG chandelier just for the 300th anniversary celebration because it has 300 on it. The Romanov family, all generations of the dynasty were incredibly wealthy and this opulence showed in the houses that they chose to live in. It's worth noting that the Romanov family didn't actually live at the Catherine Palace, but the Catherine Palace is one of the most famous of all of the Russian palaces, so it actually makes complete sense that they would include it here. Dov Bluth fought for traditional hand-drawn cell animation, but the lure of computers and CG remained too much. And this was mainly a time-saving thing, because for huge crowds of people, they could just animate a handful of characters and turn it into hundreds of characters. Backgrounds were still hand-painted, but Anastasia relied on computer effects for both huge set pieces and tiny set pieces, some of which, yes, have dated a little bit. There was a limitation of 600 colours available for hand-drawn cell animation at the time, but computer animation granted them 16 million colours. They used human actors to act out the parts, two lines as recorded by actors like Meg Ryan and John Cusack, and the animators then used these recordings to animate the characters, something that Walt Disney himself also did. Additionally, this was the first movie shot in Cinemascope since 1967, but it isn't classed as true Cinemascope as it uses modern lenses. It's a trademark Fox also used on Down With Love as a nod back to the retro 60s style. That movie is episode 68 of this podcast, and no, I did not expect to be referencing Down With Love 
in an episode on Anastasia, but there we go. Down with Love is brilliant, by the way. And despite the horrific events of what happened to the Romanov family, and to kind of bookend the horrifying and slightly strange story about what happened to them, the whole family were actually canonised by the Russian Orthodox Church abroad as holy martyrs in 1981, and then canonised as passion bearers in 2000. That means the Romanov family are now canonical Catholic saints, and the Apatiev house in Yekaterinburg, where they met their demise, was demolished, and the Church of Blood was built on the site. So the Russian people who revolted against the Romanov family, which led to their assassinations, now actually see the family as martyrs. I bet you didn't see that coming, and neither did I. Something else I bet you didn't see coming is the obligatory Keanu reference, uh, although you probably did. This is the part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And this one was surprisingly easy because Keanu starred in a 2018 thriller called Siberia. Obviously, Siberia is where Rasputin was from. And it's also where the Romanovs were under house arrest for a period of time. And Keanu also speaks a little Russian as well. So, yeah, it's not really linked to Anastasia. It's more of a link to Russia, but it still kind of works. One of the most memorable things about this movie, for me, and I think for a lot of people, is the music. The 1956 movie, Anastasia, had a score composed by Alfred Newman. This version of Anastasia has a score composed by his son, David Newman, which I think is rather quite nice, actually. The score was nominated for Best Music, Original Music or Comedy Score at the Academy Awards. Lynn Ahrens and Stephen Flaherty wrote the songs for the film. And the song Journey to the Past was also nominated for the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Neither nomination gained a win at the 70th Academy Awards, though, losing out to the Full Monty and Titanic, respectively. Journey to the Past and Once Upon a December were also nominated for Best Music, Original Song, Golden Globes. To market the film to a wider audience, President of Fox Music Robert Kraft recruited American singer Aaliyah to record a pop R&B version of the song, which is played during the film's end credits. Aliyah performed her rendition of Journey to the Past live at the 70th Academy Awards. And talking of remarkable young women who meet an unfortunate end, it's almost some weird synchronicity that Aliyah, who died so young in a plane crash, sang the song for this movie about a young girl who died so tragically. The budget for making Anastasia was reportedly $53 million, which is on the high side for an animated movie, but kind of decent. The marketing budget for Anastasia, though, was more than $50 million on its own, basically almost double the cost of the movie itself. Fox brokered deals with Burger King, Dole, Hershey, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, Shell Oil and the 1997 US Figure Skating Championships as promotional sponsors of Anastasia. The marketing costs for Anastasia actually exceeded the marketing costs for the movie Independence Day, would you believe, which came out the previous year. Additionally, there were Anastasia dolls and there were also storybooks. Basically, unlike for The Prince of Egypt, this was very much a movie marketed at children and families rather than adults. And considering Disney now owns Fox and therefore now owns the rights to Anastasia, the release of Anastasia was, shall we say, hampered by a tiny feud between the two companies. 20th Century Fox scheduled Anastasia for release on the 21st of November 1997 the week after Disney re-released The Little Mermaid, which Disney claimed was planned in advance to capitalise on the Christmas market and the fact that they traditionally re-released movies theatrically every seven to eight years and also for the movie's home video release, which was going to be in March 1998. 
Disney also released Flubber the following weekend, as well as a double feature of George of the Jungle and Hercules. Disney also banned advertisements for Anastasia on ABC's The Wonderful World of Disney and banned its corporate sponsors from airing film clips during television commercials. So maybe Disney weren't too happy that Fox were bringing out their own quote-unquote princess movie. Bill Mechanic would go on record to say he felt the response from Disney was a deliberate attempt to be a bully and a concentrated effort to keep Anastasia from realising its potential. A Disney spokesman brushed off allegations of a studio rivalry because, of course, they would. Anastasia would have a limited release on the 14th of November at the Ziegfeld Theatre in New York and a wide release on the 21st of November 1997, where it hit number two in the charts. Number one that week was, would you believe, Mortal Kombat Annihilation. And Mortal Kombat Annihilation only made just over a million dollars more than Anastasia that week. Also new out that week was Alien Resurrection, also from 20th Century Fox. That's episode 115, a nice little nod to Anastasia's name, also meaning resurrection there. Disney's Flubber would only manage a sixth place spot that week, and The Little Mermaid's re-release would be at eighth. Financially, Anastasia would gross $58.4 million domestically in the US and $81.4 million internationally for a worldwide gross of $139.8 million, making it Don Bluth's highest grossing film to that date and beating An American Tale by $55 million. And Anastasia was reviewed generally favourably, with critics praising the animation, Roger Ebert praised its story, but many criticised its lack of historical accuracy. Critical reception in Russia was mostly positive too, as the movie was marketed as a fairy tale set against the background of real Russian events. Those Russians who criticised it included Russian Orthodox Christians, who found the depiction of the Grand Duchess insulting and distasteful due to the history of the family and the fact that she was canonised as a martyr. Aside from the Oscar and Golden Globe nominations already mentioned, Anastasia would end up winning an Annie Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement for Voice Acting by a Male Performer in an Animated Feature Production for Hank Azaria for Bartok, as well as an additional seven Annie Award nominations. And speaking of Bartok, a spin-off prequel focused on him it was called Bartok the Magnificent, it came direct to video in 1999. Anastasia on Ice was also a thing. And a stage musical premiered pre-Broadway on the 13th of May to the 19th of June 2016 in Hartford, Connecticut, moving to the Broadhurst Theatre on Broadway in April 2017, and is currently touring North America. The major difference for the stage show being the removal of Rasputin as the villain, and instead creating a completely new character as the villain, a general of the Bolsheviks called Gleb Vaganov, who receives orders to kill Anastasia. So let's move over to what people think about this movie, because I think this is a movie that could quite easily divide opinion. But I like to know what people think, and I like to start with the patrons of this podcast. So we're going to start with Ian. And Ian says, I didn't remember much about this. The last time I watched it was in the cinema, and I really enjoyed it. Not your classic Disney princess, which I remember it being compared to. And it's not trying to be. The voice cast is really good. I thought Dimitri was Chris Pine until I looked it up. They all did a great job, though. I thought the songs were okay. Nothing amazing, but it worked well with the story. And we also have a patron comment from Claudia. It's quite long. I, I have condensed it ever so slightly, but I think Claudia brings up some interesting points. So here's what Claudia thinks. She says, Oh, Anastasia, I'm so conflicted. Part of me loves this film and the rest likes to dissect it. I went through a Romanoff phase when I was a young girl and never got over it, so this film is a perfect fit for me. 
and it hit hard, especially after a study in Russia, especially in St. Petersburg. I love the attention to small details. Seeing the Fabergé eggs and the art in the palace was a treat. They are a nearly perfect replica and have again ignited my hunt for my very own jewel-encrusted egg. The animated St. Petersburg brought back happy memories for me as well. It's a beautiful city. The choice of the Catherine Palace was apt. The Winter Palace would have been a good choice as well, but the Catherine Palace is the typical fairy tale palace. The grounds are gorgeous and I was fortunate to visit when the fountains were switched on and the level of opulence is one I've never experienced. I will never get over the attention to detail that went into animating this film. That being said, and yes, I know this is an animated movie, but this is me as a historian speaking. I have a huge problem with this movie and one that sometimes gives me pause before a rewatch. My point of contention comes with the choice of Rasputin as the villain. If before the exile and assassination at Apatiev, the Russian people were fed the blatantly false rhetoric of Rasputin having the family, especially Alexandra, under a Svengali-like control. The slander around this myth coloured the public's view of the family. The rumours surrounding Rasputin and the Romanovs go from silly to despicable, and I am not comfortable going over them in a family-friendly podcast. I cannot look over the damage this choice makes, has made, will make, to not only the memory of the Romanovs, but also of Rasputin and his family. I'm saddened to see the abuse that Olga, Tatiana, Maria, Anastasia and Alexei suffered because of the Rasputin rhetoric. It definitely muddied their reputation for many decades, and while the Romanov's reputation has undergone a sea change, this representation still has sway. I'm not taking offence for offence's sake, but simply pointing out that it is problematic to take real-life events and turn them into a film without having repercussions. And I understand why some will want to argue that this is a simple cartoon with no hidden message, However, it's because it is an animated film that I feel the damage caused by the quote-unquote evil Rasputin is that much more damaging. We have seen time and time again that the general public will watch a film based on true events and leave with a distorted view. And I think that's a really interesting point because how many times have any of us watched a film based on true events and believed exactly what is depicted in the film as being the true events? I mean, if you look at a movie like Titanic, which came out the same year. I'm sure there were loads of people who believed that Jack and Rose actually existed in real life. Sometimes people do take what they see on screen as gospel, whereas unlike a movie like The Prince of Egypt, which is quite open in saying this is not completely faithful to this story. However, we believe it is as faithful as it can possibly be. And maybe that's what Anastasia actually needs, some sort of disclaimer to say, this is based on true events. However, some changes have been made because I would imagine a lot of people do believe that Rasputin was just down and out evil. And as I've said on this episode, and as Claudia has said too, that actually was not the case at all. He did not have control over the Romanovs. They just genuinely believed that he could help them. And this false rhetoric surrounding him and surrounding the family led to not only his assassination, but their assassination as well. Things like this, they have real consequences. And, and this movie does gloss over a lot of those consequences because it has to, because it's a movie that's aimed at families. But I wanted to include as much of Claudia's comment as possible because I know how much she loves Russian history. And so I know that her comment was going to be absolute gold and Claudia, absolute gold as always. We also have a patron comment from perennial commenter Andy. And he says, Anastasia is an ambitious outing for an animation studio that was on life support before even getting started. While I enjoyed a lot of the music and the voice cast, I found the very obvious rotoscoping very distracting and reminiscent of the later works of Ralph Bakshi. And then his podcasting colleague Mike 
came in and said, a pretty amazing soundtrack though. So it would be the perfect opportunity now to talk to you about Andy and Mike and their podcast Geek Salad, which is basically the perfect podcast for everything nerdy and geeky, whether you like comic books, whether you like music, movies, games, pretty much anything and everything is talked about on Geek Salad. And they are a wonderful group of people, salt of the earth. I think they're all fantastic. And so I will put some information about Geek Salad in the show notes. And our final Patreon comment is from Emily, and she says, This movie has everything. Fantastic music, beautiful animation, a dark and sinister plot, and a badass princess. I love everything about this movie, and had the biggest crush on Dimitri, but seriously, who didn't? I mean, kinda yeah. <laughs> kinda yeah! Also, my husband and I both quote the smoker woman dropping her coat dramatically all the time. This movie is so damn quotable and fun. I'll tell you what else is really fun, and that is Emily's podcast. It's called I Drink Your Podcast. They basically take one year. So the previous year was 2007, and they talked about movies of 2007. They've now moved on to the movies of 2010. And I'm really excited because I'm actually going to be going back on I Drink Your Podcast. I went on to talk about Hot Fuzz, which is obviously a brilliant movie and so damn quotable. And I'm going to be going back, but I'm not going to tell you what I'm going back for. But very soon, I'm going to be going back on Andrew, your podcast, and I'm very excited. Moving over to Twitter. We're going to start with a podcast that knows all about Russian history, Russian cinema, basically the premier Russian cinema podcast. And I actually asked Ali for his opinion on this movie because I kind of figured, well, if anyone's going to know about Anastasia, it's probably going to be Ali. And Ali at Russell Files Unite at Russell Files U said, I'm embarrassed to say I've only seen bits and pieces of it. At Tall Cap would be a good person to talk to as she's a big fan. And then At Tall Cap came into the conversation and she said, Well, my opinion is also amateur, but I do love Anastasia. Haven't seen it in many years, but I think the music is beautiful. The villain genuinely creepy, formidable, a critical component often overlooked in current animated films and the bat delightfully fun to impersonate. At Vintage Video Pod said, just learned this a minute ago on Reddit. A woman is selling pyjamas that belong to Count Yusupov. In real life, Yusupov was one of the Russian aristocrats who assassinated Rasputin. That's a really interesting point and not something that I picked up on myself. So thanks very much for bringing that up. At Kev Haney said, Remember taking my sister to see this and really liking it. So much, in fact, I bought the Journey to the Past single and listened to At the Beginning a lot because I quite enjoyed a bit of Donna Lewis at the time. The animation is strong and so are the voice performances. I mean, check out that voice cast. Ryan, Cusack, Lloyd and Azaria stealing the show. My sister enjoyed it too and it was on a regular rotation in our house when it finally got its VHS release. Underrated gem. Expect there's many that grew up at a similar time who remember it fondly. At Thief CGT said, I haven't seen this since it came out. Remember enjoying it, but I barely remember anything. At Clovol6 said, Totally read Oldman and not Goldman and my life flashed before my eyes trying to work out how I'd missed that. Because in the post I put Gary Goldman, and you can easily get Gary Goldman and Gary Oldman mixed up. <laughs> Gary Oldman is not in this movie. And at Sarah KM 703 said, This movie is so important to me. It's a mess, but a beautiful mess. And the soundtrack is a straight banger. The 2019 musical takes the things that work about the story and tosses them out and leans into the real history of it all to disastrous, jarring effects. But the soundtrack is also a bop, and My Petersburg was my most listened to song that year. Moving over to Instagram, we have at Friendly Sparpod, who said, 
I have a lot of time for this movie. The music by Erins and Flaherty is just phenomenal, and I have been listening to the Broadway soundtrack recently as well. 10 out of 10. No comments over on Facebook, but that's kind of par for the course nowadays. But a huge thank you to all of the patrons and to everyone who commented on Anastasia. It feels quite conflicting to enjoy Anastasia. For all its beauty, both visually, musically, it simultaneously calls to and rejects its tragic origin story. The fate of the Romanov family is something truly horrific, especially as well when you consider that the Bolsheviks had no qualms about murdering children. The fates of the family were hidden for so long, and having a sweet, lovely animated musical about a child so brutally murdered when she was just 17 years old seems like a bit of a controversial choice nowadays. I mean, the filmmakers couldn't know what would eventually happen, that bodies would eventually be found, and then it would be confirmed how brutally that the family had been killed. This isn't like Disney amending the ending of The Little Mermaid so that she finds her prince instead of being turned to sea foam. This is based on a true story, and there's always a responsibility there to portray some element of fact of that story. And ultimately, despite its historical whitewashing, it really is a charming and beautiful story that easily matches some of the 90s Disney output for visual flair and attention to detail. And yet it never not feels like a Don Bluth movie either. Now it's owned by Disney and is available on Disney+, Plus. I'm hopeful more people will actually watch this movie. No, Anastasia is not a Disney princess now, but she comes darn close. You have a lost princess finding her grandmother, the con man being redeemed, and the bad guy dissolving into a puddle of his own bones. You know, regular Disney stuff. There's a lot of parallels between Anastasia and the Prince of Egypt, both based on history, both with an all-star cast, both with beautiful music and scores. The story of DreamWorks going forward would be way different to the story of Fox Animation Studios going forward. However, for that story, you need to go all the way back to episode one of this podcast. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Anastasia. And here's the thing. You can not only get involved in this podcast, you can also help it grow and reach more people. The power is yours, basically, to get involved and have your comments read out in episodes. Simply comment on the thoughts posts that go up on social media for episodes. These are usually on a Saturday. They are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Leave your comment and I will read that comment out. It's really that simple to actually get involved in this podcast. To help this podcast grow, you could do one of the following things. You could leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser or Spotify. I will put a handy link in the show notes for you to do that if you wish. You can retweet or like posts on social media. As I said, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and also Letterboxd as well. They are all at Verbal Diorama. And the easiest thing you can do is if you have a friend who likes movies, then just tell them about this podcast and help them find this podcast in their podcast app. And if you like this episode on Anastasia specifically, you might also like one of the following episodes of this podcast. I've mentioned it a couple of times already. Episode number one, all the way back in February 2019, I did the first episode of this podcast on an animated movie that literally sank an entire studio, spoilers, for that movie. It is the second movie that Fox Animation Studios did. And yeah, it didn't go very well. But I go into the whole history of Titan AE in episode number one. You'll just have to forgive 
the terrible audio quality, most probably from back then, because I was a new podcast and an independent podcast. We learn, we evolve, we get better, we get new equipment. Episode number one is definitely not going to sound as great as these episodes do. But I promise you the content is top quality. Episode 76, I went back to Don Bluth for The Secret of Nim, which was in last animation season. And this is also an incredibly interesting story about The Secret of Nim and about how Don Bluth got that movie made. That also goes into a little bit of history to do with Don Bluth as well. And that is a movie that I think traumatised quite a lot of children. And it was obviously something that Don Bluth didn't want to recreate with traumatising children in Anastasia, although there are some quite traumatising scenes in Anastasia to do with Rasputin and when he sells his soul and then when he dies. But anyway, I digress. And the other episode that I wanted to recommend was a couple of episodes ago, The Prince of Egypt, episode 136, because again, it's based on Egyptian history. It's also based on biblical stories as well. But even if you're not particularly religious, I think you can still get a lot out of the Prince of Egypt. And I go into all of the history and legacy for the Prince of Egypt in that episode. As always, give me feedback. Let me know if you think I missed anything. Next episode announcement. So, I love Lord and Miller on this podcast. I love them with a capital L. Everything they do, I've enjoyed. I think they are brilliant. I think they're hilarious. I've covered a few of those things that they've done on this podcast, but the directorial debut was a sweet little animated movie called Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. And it set them on a really interesting path, which included a big screen adaptation of a TV show and its sequel, a movie about Lego, a Star Wars story, and all across the Spider-Verse via the Mitchell family. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is the next episode of this podcast and it'll be nice to get into something fairly light and fun this animation season because, let's be honest, it's been pretty low-key depressing thus far. We've had robot death, corpses, Irish invasions, slavery and assassinations and now we are getting the weather made out of food. This is what this podcast needs. Weather <laughs> made out of food. So join me next week for Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. I've mentioned what you can do if you want to get involved with this podcast. And if you want to get involved financially and you want to support this podcast, you don't have to, but it would be awesome if you could. You can go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon and you can join the wonderful patrons of this podcast. They are Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian M, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart and Ian D. Oh, sorry, I thought you were someone else. Oh, it's you. God, well, that's okay then. I have a new merch store that's going to be launching very, very soon at verbaldiorama.com slash merch. So look out for that, especially if you are a fan of the greatest movie ever made. If you want to get in touch with me, it's verbaldiorama at gmail.com or you can pop over to verbaldiorama.com and fill out a contact form. And I'm also at filmstories.co.uk. I write articles for the website. I also write articles for the magazine as well. And finally, this is for Dimitri. This is for my family. And this, this is for you. Das Vidanya. Das Vidanya.